This week, we fly with the swans into the fantasy world of Loom. That, the news, and all the other regular stuff on the Upper Memory Block podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity, or do you die here? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 11 of the Upper Memory Block podcast. As usual, I am your host, Joe, and we are here once again to explore an interesting new game in the DOS and pre-Windows XP kind of gaming realm, I guess you could say. So welcome to uh, to any new listeners, and as usual, if you are back again listening for hopefully the 11th time. Uh, thank you very much for, for sticking it out. So not a ton of stuff has been uh, has been going on around here in Toronto. Uh, luckily, over the past two weeks, the uh, the temperature, excuse me, has broken a little bit. So uh, I'm not sitting around in uh, in blistering heat anymore. Things are a little more seasonal, which is which is quite nice. And I'm actually very happy and it's very convenient. Because uh, that 30k race that I keep talking about, that I've been talking about probably since the beginning of the podcast, is this Saturday. And uh, so far, the weather's looking great. It's looking to be clear. It's looking to be not very humid. And it's looking to be uh, about 20 degrees Celsius, which I'm not sure what that is in Fahrenheit, but it's probably around 80-ish or, you know, high 70s, low 80s kind of a thing. So it will should be uh, it should be pretty ideal for, uh, for a little jaunt, a little run outside along the lake. So hooray. Uh, aside from that, I got myself a new video card, a, uh, a GeForce GTX 670. Obviously, that has no bearing on the games I play for this podcast, but uh, it definitely gave me a little boost in the uh, in the modern gaming realm. But all that aside, enough about me. Let's get on to the news. Firstly, uh, if you remember back in the uh, in the Wolfenstein 3D show, I talked a little bit about Rise of the Triad. So this was a first-person shooter game that was originally envisioned as a sequel or a spin-off from uh, from Wolfenstein 3D. Well, it looks like a remake of Rise of the Triad is in fact in the works. So way back, like very shortly after uh, the last episode came out on August 2nd at uh, QuakeCon, Apogee Software and Interceptor Entertainment announced that they will be making a new and modern interpre- interpretation of, uh, of the classic game, which is going to be built on the really great-looking Unreal 3 engine. So this game looks really, really cool, and I will keep you all posted. I will, uh, I will post the link to, uh, to riseofthetriad.net on, in the show notes, and you guys can go take a look for yourselves. Speaking of keeping everyone posted, uh, King Isaac Linkser, who emailed in last week, uh, pointed me towards some new info, actually, about the upcoming XCOM Enemy Unknown game. Uh, it looks like the game will have uh, competitive multiplayer, where you can mix and match kind of human and alien units fighting side by side. This is a little bit controversial because kind of the, uh, as we discussed way back in the XCOM episode, you know, it's the traditional formula for XCOM is humans equals good and aliens equals bad. Here you can mix and match in uh, in different teams and have them fight side by side, and uh, I guess we'll see how that works out. Also, with regard to XCOM, we now know that the game is coming out this October 9th, and it can be pre-ordered at XCOM.com/enemyunknown. Again, that will be linked in the show notes. 
Finally, for uh, for the third piece of news, uh, a little a little bit unfortunately of sad news. On August 11th, 3D artist Paul Steed passed away suddenly. Now, if you don't recognize the name, it's it's quite reasonable that you don't. But uh, you've definitely, if uh, you're listening to this show, most likely seen his work. Paul was a, a pioneer in early, I guess you can call it low polygon count, 3D modeling, and uh, he did a lot of modeling. In fact, he did all the modeling in games like Strike Commander, uh, the Wing Commander games that came after that. So basically, uh, not the first two Wing Commander games, but all following Wing Commander games. And then later on, he actually uh, moved over to id Software, and uh, he did a lot of very pioneering 3D modeling work in Quake and Quake 2, and that whole series of games. So it's uh, unfortunately a bit of sad news. Uh, Chris Roberts, as we discussed, the creator of Wing Commander, sent this note to uh, Wing Commander CIC, which is a, a very popular Wing Commander uh, fan site, with, uh, with a couple of memories of Paul. So I'll just read this little excerpt of what Wing Commander CIC posted from Chris Roberts. Here's a story from the beginning of Paul's career that illustrates the impact he made in the video games industry. We hired Paul at Origin just out of the Air Force to work on Strike Commander. We didn't have a budget to hire a quote-unquote proper artist, but we liked Paul's attitude and saw talent when he came in for an interview, so we invented an art design assistant position for him. Strike Commander was my follow-up to Wing Commander, and we were pushing the boundaries of what you could do on PCs. We had Gorad shading and real 3D texture mapping before anyone else had tried it in games. Originally, we didn't think we could make the planes look cool enough in real 3D, so we were going to use sprites rendered out from 3DS Studio, which is how Wing Commander 1 and 2 were done. We had built a utility so we could model and texture low-poly buildings and objects for the ground terrain. This was long before such niceties as API and SDKs in things like 3D Studio Max and Maya to be able to import meshes into your engine. We gave it to Paul to build objects as an early test. He came into my office a few days later and said, I want to show you something. And then he proceeded to show a beautifully built 3D fighter inside our engine. Because of Paul's work and talent, we decided to junk the Wing Commander sprite rendering and everything went 3D, including the cockpits, many years before anyone else had done that had done any of that in a game. That's a testimony to Paul's talent and vision in our industry. I'll miss you greatly. So those were some nice words from from Chris Roberts. And, you know, it is definitely sad when uh, when anyone dies, and especially when, uh, you know, someone who's so pioneering in uh, in an industry does pass away. So uh, I guess uh, despite the fact that many of us didn't know him, I, uh, I imagine that Paul will be missed and... Uh, I guess his legacy will live on in in all these great games that we love to play. So on a brighter note, on a much brighter note, in fact, I, I got a couple of emails this week. Hooray. So before we get rolling on the main topic, we uh, I think I should, I'll, I'll get around to reading them. So Andreas writes... Hi, Joe. I don't really have much to say about Descent. I played a little at a friend's house, but he also had Mortal Kombat and XCOM, so those took quite a bit of love away from Descent that it might have deserved. Instead, I'd like to talk about another memory related to early PC gaming. You mentioned how you rebuilt an old system with a Riva TNT card. I remember seeing the TNT 2 in a gaming magazine with my friends. It showed a screenshot of Unreal with an, at the time, amazing high-res mosaic texture on the wall. We so wanted that card, but as you mentioned, we didn't exactly have money back then. 
One of my friends and his brother saved all their money together and bought the first G-Force, which had rendered the TNT-2 obsolete by the time they had enough. They sold their old 3DFX Voodoo 2 to me for a small price, and since I already had one of those, I could run them both in parallel, which was amazing. Then, when I too finally had saved enough, I got a GeForce 2 MX and a RAM expansion which enabled the same P2266 that I had used to play Duke Nukem 3D to run Quake 3 Arena on full detail. Just the other week, I cleaned out my parents' attic room and opening up that old P2 to behold the GeForce 2 in my hands, it gave me such a warm, fuzzy feeling. The, mor- the moral of the story is that if you're really passionate about something, money isn't really a problem. You get around it. I always tweaked that P2 down to the bone just to play games that it shouldn't be able to. And you know, Andreas, that's that's really true. And I, I kind of did something similar a little bit later on. Uh, I guess when I was in, I can't remember if it was right near the end of high school or kind of into my first year of, of CEGEP, which in Quebec is basically kind of like a two-year college that you do before you go on to do your undergrad. But uh, a couple of, I think about four of four of us, me and three of my friends, got together, we pooled our money together, and I think we were able to kind of gather up, I think it was about $300. And we bought, uh, I think it was a, a dual speed CD burner. It was our first CD burner. And we put it in my friend Alex's computer because he had the best computer at the time with the most RAM and all that. And so that kind of became our burning station. We were able to use that burner. All of us had free access to the burner whenever we could get to Alex's house. And, uh, you know, we burned music and we burned games and all kinds of stuff like that. And, uh, you know, that's exactly what happened. We didn't have the money, so we pooled our resources and, and we got that burner and, you know, we made quite a few uh, coasters out of out of CDs that we messed up because things were very, very unreliable at that time. But, you know, it was a lot of fun and, and it's true when you just make things work when you don't have, uh, when you don't necessarily have the money. So thanks for that memory. That's That's really great. So second email I got is from Chris, and Chris writes, Hi Joe, I just wanted to give my thoughts on the last few games that you have covered. So he lists them here. Command and Conquer. I really forgot how good this game was. After playing it again, I have to say that it really holds up well. One of the big things about it is its replayability. Not just the fact that you can play either side, but even on the individual missions. You can decide to build up your base until you have a sizable army and then attack or try and do a quick attack to finish your enemy off early. Red Baron, I did not play this much back in the day, and as you say, because of the graphics, it does look a bit dated now. Having said that, I do remember enjoying the game and going back to it now. It is still a fun game to play, and you can tell that a lot of thought went into making the game. Descent, I had forgotten about this completely until you mentioned it. I played this with a fair number of other first-person shooters at the time, like Doom and Heretic. For me, this was a great game and had the added movement, which also meant added confusion, but it kind of got lost in the mix with the other similar games on the market at the time. Now, one final thing. I am afraid that I have a big problem with your podcast. It is using up a lot of my free time. Not only have I replayed many of the games you have covered, it has also led me to have a go at many other games I remember well. In the past few months, I have replayed Transport Tycoon, TIE Fighter, X-Wing, Full Throttle, Discworld, Castles 2 Siege and Conquest, Falcon, but seriously, really enjoying the podcast and uh, the fortnightly blast from the past. Well, thank you so much, and, and you know, it's, it's, it's great. I, I enjoyed your, the little roundup of, uh, of recent shows. And uh, yeah, you know, I think with 
with Descent, like I said many, many times in the last episode, I didn't play as much as I probably should have at the time either. And I think that was probably the, the reason was just that there were so many first person shooters out at the time that it just kind of got buried. And, and that's really sad because I know that the people that love Descent love it and playing it today, you can see how fun and how unique it actually was. But, you know, at least it's still available. And, uh, you know, we have all these mechanisms, be it DOSBox, be it the, the source ports that I talked about or all that to uh, to play it these days. And with the source ports, it even looks about a million times better than it originally did. So thank you very much for that. And finally, a short little note from Scott that I got recently. And Scott writes, Hey Joe, just a note to let you know how much I love your podcast. I'm currently working my way through the back catalog. The developer story is my favorite part of the show. As a computer programmer, I really enjoy learning about the history of how the games were made. Please don't give up, Scott. Well, Scott, don't worry. I don't plan on giving up any time soon. And, uh, you know, I'm glad. I said it in, uh, I believe it was in the last episode or maybe it was the Red Baron show. But, uh, you know, the developer story is is something that I feel very, very strongly about. And, you know, you're a computer programmer. I'm a computer programmer as well. And so these stories from how things were developed really, really does interest me because I really like getting into the details and you know, since I'm not a game developer myself by day, I'm a web developer. It's an aspect of programming that I don't really get into incredible detail on. So, you know, it's very interesting for me to see how, I guess, another part of the industry, another part of the development world runs. And uh, yeah, so that's it. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for all right, on to our main topic for the week, Loom. So Loom is a very unique adventure game released in what is becoming a very popular year for the show, 1990. It was both developed and published by what was then known as Lucasfilm Games, which of course today we know very well as LucasArts. So the genre, um, adventure games are, are probably old hat stuff to us by now. Uh, we've covered graphic adventure games twice before, both way back in episode one with Sam and Max Hit the Road and in episode five with the Space Quest series. On the surface, Loom is very similar in scope to these two games. You're placed in the role of a protagonist and you're required to fulfill a main quest that is dramatically presented to you very early on in the game. In fact, since we've already covered a LucasArts adventure game, we can get even more specific than that. As we discussed in the Sam and Max episode, LucasArts graphical adventures encourage the player to accomplish the quest without fear of getting into an unavoidable state, without fear of dying, or without otherwise having to revert to you know previously saved games or anything like that. So, like last week with Descent, if I leave it there, I won't be misinterpreting what this game is. However, I am leaving out a huge piece of the puzzle which makes this game truly unique amongst graphic adventures. And it was also a very nice twist that I didn't know about until I got around to actually playing it. So on to the story. Unlike the last few games we've talked about on the show, this game has more story than you can shake a die staff at. Other LucasArts adventures like Maniac Mansion and Sam and Max tended to be fun and a bit silly when, when it came to their worlds and their storylines. Now Loom was a great departure from this. It was based on a somewhat serious, complex, and well-developed fantasy story. Uh, the game's storyline is very loosely based on the story of Swan Lake, and also features renditions of some of the major musical themes from the ballet. 
The story and world were so complex, in fact, that the original version of the game shipped with an audio cassette. Kids, ask your parents. They will tell you what it is. Uh, This audio cassette contained a professionally produced audio drama, which lasted 30 minutes, which provides an awesome image of the world the game takes place in and the events that lead up to the start of the game. So instead of explaining things to you, I'll just play the first five minutes or so of the audio drama right here. It was long after the passing of the second shadow, when dragons ruled the twilight sky and the stars were bright and numerous, that humankind began to thirst again for dominion over nature. Their weapon was industry, and they wielded it with confidence. One by one, the mysteries of light and darkness fell before the engines of progress. Whole nations came to believe that nothing lay beyond the power of their own arrogance. Competition was fierce in those productive days. Skilled labor became a valuable commodity. And so the tradespeople of the land banded themselves together to promote their common interests and to protect their secrets. These professional societies swelled in power as their membership grew. A few, such as the blacksmiths and the clerics, acquired vast territories with private armies to defend them. Thus began the age of the great guilds, vast city-states devoted to the absolute control of knowledge, held together by stern traditions of pride and of fear. Within the span of a few lifetimes, the commerce of the world was in their hands. But not all of the guilds were equally ambitious. The spinners of thread and weavers of fabric wished only to pursue their labor without interference. They did not involve themselves in the politics of the day and left the administration of taxes and wars to others. So the Guild of Weavers never attained the prominence of the shepherds or the glassmakers. Their number was small, for their strict rules forbade membership to any but the child of a member. Marriage outside the Guild was discouraged and eventually outlawed. Outsiders regarded the Weavers' ingrown society with distaste. Yet their customs were not without benefit. The natural talents of their membership were nurtured and purified, generation after generation, until the greatest among them wove fabrics of such extraordinary beauty that the whole world wondered at their achievements. Goods bearing the seal of the guild commanded a premium price and the weavers amassed considerable wealth in this period, which they quietly hoarded. Like the other guilds, the weavers had evolved a philosophy of living based on the tools and terminology of their handiwork. They beheld in their great frames of wood and metal a symbol of universal truth and found ways to work 
subtle patterns of influence into the fabrics they wove. The cloth of the guild soon became known for virtues other than mere beauty. Certain weaves seemed to possess remarkable powers of healing. Others held a charm against ill fortune. In the fullness of time, the art of the weavers transcended the limits of physical cloth. They abandoned the flax and dyes of their ancestors to wield the very stuff of light and music and spun new patterns directly in the fabric of reality. The ignorant looked upon these works with fear and called them witchcraft. Many of the guild were persecuted, a few were hanged. To protect their heritage, the weavers expended a small fraction of their wealth to purchase a rocky island off the mainland coast. They packed up their spindles and skeins and shuttles and retreated from the company of men to refine their arts in solitude. Many wars and plagues followed. Mighty guilds fell into ruin. Others rose to surpass them. The exhausted world all but forgot the humble guild of weavers, and few found reason to visit their home, an island of mystery shrouded in perpetual mist, shunned by sailors, which ancient maps call Loom. So that's a really great kind of overview of, of the world and, and how things work. So from here, the audio drama continues into kind of a more, let's say, specific situation. Uh, we're introduced to Lady Signa Threadbare of the Guild of Weavers. She, res she requests an audience with, uh, with the elders of the guild and implores them to use the power of the loom to help end the suffering of the weavers. As it turns out, their numbers are dwindling and they are no longer able to conceive children. The elders strongly disagree, saying it is not their place to play God and that they cannot use the loom to affect the pattern in any way they see fit. Of course, Signa, being a good person, uh, ignores the elders' warning and, and sneaks into the elders' sanctum. She takes control of the loom and plants a single gray thread into the pattern. This action results in an infant emerging from the loom. Of course, the elders quickly arrive and see what's transpired. They decide Signa must be banished for her insolence and for her defiance of their orders. She is ordered and does surrender the child to Dame Hetchel, who is an old serving woman. Hetchel promises to raise the child as her own. Finally, the elders cast the Draft of Transcendence on Signa, which turns her into a swan. They then tear a rip in reality and banish the swan through it, sending it outside of the pattern. Hetchel names the child Bobbin Threadbare, and in keeping with her promise, raises him as her son. Bobbin grows up alone and ostracized from the guild, 
uh, for the elders decreed that he would not be trained in the ways of the weavers until a decision is made at his coming of age when he turns 17 years old. Hetchel, of course, defies the elders and secretly teaches him some of the basics of weaving. As the game begins, Bobbin is relaxing under a tree watching the night sky. It's his 17th birthday, and he's summoned to the Hall of the Elders. Bobbin makes his way down and walks in on the following scene. There's Hetchel. And the Elders don't look at all pleased with her. You have heard the findings of this council, Dame Hetchel? Have you anything to say in your own defense? My Elders... My actions speak for themselves. This reckless defiance is intolerable. Any secret you share with Signa's son might be turned against us. His talent is awakening, and the power is very strong in him. We dare not desert him now. Stubborn old fool! Who are you to decide such things? Enough, Lachesis. Hetrell, I am grieved to see your many years of service end in such disgrace. My destiny is yours to weave. Hetchel, the fabric of your life has been woven by your own choices. Gaze once more upon the great loom, if you would know your ultimate destiny. For that destiny is now upon you. Swan's egg. What does it mean? Something is deeply wrong. That draft has never failed before. What is that noise? Outside! The guild is under attack! Who dares to desecrate the great loom of the weavers? This is the work of that demon boy! We should kill him while we still can! Your name will be cursed forever! Son of Signa! Loom child! Bobby! My name? But I had nothing to do with this! Wait! Where are you going? No explanations. No goodbyes. And once again, I'm left behind. So, the end of that clip bears a little bit of explanation. So, in retribution for defending Bobbin and defying the elders in training him in the ways of, uh, of the guild, the elders cast the Transcendence Draft on Hetchel. However, it fails to turn her into a swan and only turns her into a swan's egg. Suddenly, a swan smashes through the stained glass window and casts the same draft on all of the elders and, in fact, on the rest of the villagers living on the island of Loom, turning them all into swans and leading the whole flock through a large rift in the sky outside of the pattern along with her. So Bobbin is now the only one left along with the egg. He picks up the Elder's fallen die staff, or maybe it's D-staff, I think it's D-staff, which allows the Weavers to cast drafts. With some prompting, he discovers the draft for opening and casts it on the egg. A black signet, which is, which is a baby swan or a swanling, if you will, emerges from the egg. It can talk, and it's Hetchel! She's herself, aside from the fact that she's in her current uh, signet form. Hetchel explains the swan that caused all of this is the same swan that has been mysteriously visiting Bobbin every year on his birthday. 
Hetchel can't stay in this world very long in her current form, and she must follow the flock. It's up to Bobbin to find the flock in his own way. So that's where I'll leave off the detailed rendition of the plot. Bobbin's first task is to escape the island of Loom. He does so quickly and, uh, and begins to encounter the other guilds that, uh, that the weavers kind of abandoned when, uh, when they moved onto their island. So he encounters the glassmakers, the blacksmiths, and the shepherds. Uh, it slowly becomes apparent that all these guilds are doing work for the Guild of Clerics. Suffice it to say, we quickly learn that something is amiss. And of course, it falls to Bobbin to put things right in addition to finding his lost flock. Now, I do usually go through the whole plot with you guys, but this story is so well told, so well written, and well acted, it's just so darn engaging that that I really just feel like like I'd be doing you a disservice by spoiling the whole thing. It really, really should be experienced firsthand. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Okay, so on to the gameplay. Well, I did just heap a whole bunch of compliments on the story. Really great storytelling is not the only thing that makes this game special and truly unique. The other is right here, the gameplay. Of course, this is a graphical adventure game, and as I described before, it does fit very well into the general description of the genre. There is, however, one very major difference between this game and other adventure titles that we've seen. Now, in a normal adventure game, to solve puzzles, the player is generally required to interact with the world, pick up objects, add them to an inventory system, possibly combine them together or take them apart, and otherwise interact with the world using a variety of different actions, such as walk, look, use, talk, taste, etc. All that other stuff that we've heard about kind of in the past with our other adventure games. Now, Loom does not use this type of interface. In the entire game, you really only have the ability to pick up one item, the D-Staff. Bobbin acquires this item very early in the game. Before he gets his hands on it, all he can really do is walk around and look at things that are kind of hot-spotted. The D-Staff allows Bobbin to conjure drafts, which are effectively the Weaver's version of magic spells. Each draft consists of a series of four musical notes, which are played on the D-Staff. There are a total of eight playable notes on the staff. C, D, E, F, G, A, B, and high C. Each draft performs a very specific action such as open, die, sharpen, heal, illuminate, and and much, much more. The other aspect of this system is that the drafts are reversible. So for example, the first draft you learn is open, which is triggered by playing the notes E, C, E, D. So if you cast E, C, E, D on an object and the object can be opened, it does so. However, what do you do if there's something open that you want to close? It's very simple. You reverse the open draft. If E, C, E, D is open, then D, E, C, E is closed. I think that's pretty cool and it's pretty innovative. Now, there's one problem with this whole situation. As the game starts, as we've talked about, Bobbin has very little to almost no knowledge of the way of the weavers. While Hetchel taught him enough to have the ability to cast drafts, he has no knowledge of any specific drafts. This is another very cool part of the game. You learn all the drafts available in the game by interacting with objects and interacting with the world. As an example, here is a clip of Bobbin learning the open draft. 
Now we're just at the point where he's trying to free Hetchel from the swan's eggs like we talked about in the storyline section. So clicking on the egg plays the open draft, which Bobbin can then reproduce on his die staff, or D staff, sorry, I'm going to call it both because whatever, uh, which causes, so playing it on the, the D staff causes the egg to open. So here's that clip. Egg, it's trying to open. So this happens all throughout the game. By the end of the game, Bobbin can learn up to 16 different drafts. So on top of the fact that you learn drafts as you progress through the world, there's also a little bit of an unlocking kind of progression style mechanic to the notes on your D-Staff. As I said, the D-Staff has a total of eight playable notes. However, right at the start of the game, you only have access to the first three notes, C, D, and E. At times you may come across drafts that require notes you don't yet have the skill to play. New notes unlock when you reach certain milestones in the story, certain major events happen, and uh, I guess you kind of, in a way, level up, and uh, you know the next note becomes available. If you learn a draft that you can't yet spin, uh, it just means that you don't really need it yet in, in the progression of the story. Finally, this is one of the few adventure games that I've come across that actually has difficulty levels. Uh, there are three, Practice, Standard, and Expert. As you go up in difficulty, the D-Staff interface become, becomes less and less labeled, less and less uh, obvious. So on standard, so on the standard difficulty level, the notes are labeled, which makes it easier to see which note is being played. On expert, the only indicator of which note is being played when you're learning a draft is a colored sparkling on the area of the D-Staff, which needs to be clicked to play the note. And actually, in the original DOS floppy version, finishing the game on Expert rewards you with a little extended, uh, extended scene at the end of the game. Now, as great as Loom is, it is, in fact, not without its problems. Most of the game's issues do stem from its unique gameplay mechanics. Uh, the first issue stems from the draft mechanism itself. The game ships with a paper manual called the Book of Drafts. It's very nicely illustrated and and all of that really great, you know, pack in, pack in material. And in it, there's a list of all the drafts available in the game, in addition to a few additional ones that aren't. Uh, the way you remember drafts, or the way you remember that open is E, C, E, D, and all that is, uh, is quite simple. You write them down in the book. Now, this wouldn't be a big deal because you'd think that, you know, once you do it one time, it's fine, but that's not true. Every time you start a new game from the beginning, so this doesn't mean restoring from a save game, it means clicking start a new game, the threads of the draft, that is the notes required to play them, change. The game implies that the drafts are randomly generated. Now, in reality, it turns out that each draft, except the first one and the last one, have two or three different combinations, and the game chooses a random set of all these combinations on each restart. So, if you happen to misplace your manual, or more likely, the random scrap of paper that you jotted down your draft combinations on, you basically have to restart the game. This is a really big issue for replayability. Say you had the game sitting on your computer for, I don't know, a year, and you never finished it, and you want to go back to play it. It's more likely than not, you won't be able to find your draft list again. 
This game was actually the first LucasArts scum-based adventure game to really embrace what would become known as the LucasArts game design philosophy. Uh, The main idea of this philosophy is, like I've implied before, uh, no matter what, a player will never be killed, a player will never have to restart, or to have to try and hunt for the verb like in other text-based parser games. This external manual method of recording drafts that I just talked about is pretty much in direct contradiction of this philosophy. It, uh, it wouldn't really, in my mind, have been much to add it's something like an in-game spellbook which, uh, in which you'd have your drafts recorded kind of for a quick reference. It wouldn't be like, you know, click the draft and have it play. But at least that way, if you came back kind of later in, later in time and you don't have whatever you wrote down, you know, it would at least be an easy way to get back get back into things. Maybe that would render the game much too easy, but I'm certain it would have saved a lot of headaches for for players of Loom back in the day. The second big issue with Loom is kind of twofold. Firstly, the game is quite short. Secondly, the game is quite easy. Uh, I was able to play through the game without a walkthrough and, and get through it in, I guess, maybe about three hours. Now, adventure games of this time were generally pretty short, but uh, traditionally, they were maddeningly difficult. If you knew what you were doing, you could easily beat Space Quest 1 in maybe even under an hour. But the leaps of logic to figure out the puzzles would leave you stumped and make the game take months to resolve. So maybe it's a function of the game's interface, but uh, the solution to most puzzles in Loom are usually fairly obvious. And even if you don't see the solution right off the bat, Uh, All you really need to do is rotate through all of your drafts that you've discovered so far and come to one that actually does something. There's generally no penalty for weaving the wrong draft, so kind of the the brute force approach of solving puzzles can work in this game more often than not. However, those issues aside, this is really, really, really a truly unique gameplay experience, and these issues don't really detract from the game your first time through. Is it a game you'll come back to play over and over? Well, I guess that's another question, which uh, perhaps we will talk about a little bit later. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Loom was released in 1990, and technologically, if you look at it on the surface, was relatively common for the time. The original version of the game shipped on either six lower density five and a quarter floppy disks, those are the big bendy black ones, or three higher density 3.5 inch disks. Uh, To run the game required a minimum of a 286 running at 10 megahertz with your standard 640K of RAM. So the original game was rendered in 320 by 200 EGA graphics with 16 colors. While these graphics weren't really, I guess we could say groundbreaking for the time, I mean, in the same year you had other games like Wing Commander coming out in full VGA with you know, all their shading and stuff that we even kind of talked about a little bit uh, back in the news section, but they had a really, really great artistic style to them, and they were very, very suitable to the high fantasy setting of the game. In fact, 
I read they were inspired by Disney movies like Sleeping Beauty. Also, the artist used a lot of really cool effects at the time, like uh, dithering, which basically consists of adding in kind of, I guess you can call it color noise, to break up large swaths of solid colors to give things a more realistic appearance. So because of this, a lot of people actually believe the original game was rendered in 256 colors when it was only rendered in 16. So while they weren't really pushing the new technology or you know they weren't really grabbing onto the newest technology at the time, which was VGA 256, they were really pushing existing EGA technology right to its limits. The animation was very, very smooth and overall did a very good job of conveying what was going on very clearly. Now, on to the most important part of this game, the music. Being that this game is based on Tchaikovsky's ballet, Swan Lake, in addition to the fact that the interface is basically you playing different combinations of musical notes, you can obviously come to the conclusion that music plays a very big role in this game. The Loom soundtrack consists entirely of music adapted from Swan Lake. The music was adapted by George Sanger, who's also known as the Fat Man. Sanger is kind of an icon in early video game music. In addition to Loom, he worked on the MIDI composition on Wing Commander, Ultima Underworld, The Seventh Guest, and many, many, many more games. For the podcast, I actually went out of my way to get the original EGA version of the game so I could experience the music in its originally intended form. It's just beautiful coming out of my MT32. Actually, you know, speaking of the MT32, there's one interesting point about the music in this game. Considering the huge role that music played in the game, the original version shipped with only PC speaker and ad-lib support. So in the box, there was an order form for an additional disc which would patch in the Roland MT32 support for the game. So when I first got the EGA version up and running, uh, I didn't realize it, and when I first started up the game in Scum VM, it actually popped up a warning telling me I couldn't use my MT32 and was switching to ad-lib mode. I think I freaked for a second. No, I can't listen to this awful beeping of the ad-lib. Anyways, luckily I was able to find the 22-year-old patch file on LucasArts' official support site. I'm actually very impressed that LucasArts maintains this file up on support.lucasarts.com. It was really cool. So I downloaded the support file, but I had to actually install it via DOSBox since all the file really was was a very, very old DOS PKZip self-extracting file. And so I installed that and boom, my MT32 woke up. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm pretty certain that there was a business case for shipping the game with ad-lib support first since that was much more widespread and, you know, at the time, I guess 1990, I think the MT32 kind of came out in either 86 or 88, so I'm not sure if it had really hugely broken into the market by that point in time. So anyways, regardless of why or how, I'd say that Loom's music is very, very unique in its quality of execution and also in its very deep integration into the game's gameplay.
You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Okay, time for everyone's favorite part, the development story. So, Loom was the brainchild of Brian Moriarty. Uh, Despite being born in 1956, Brian had some very early exposure to computers in his elementary school days. This fostered a love of technology in him all through school. However, he didn't go the route of many of our other developers, and in 1978, Moriarty received a BA in English from Southeastern Massachusetts University. Shortly thereafter, he got a job at Radio Shack selling the TRS-80 computer, and uh, then as a technical writer at Bose Corporation. In an interview, he actually states the only reason he didn't get fired from his job at Radio Shack was because the demos he was writing for the computers made them look really, really good and sell very well. So this is where he got kind of his first small taste of game programming, because obviously a lot of the demos he would come up with were kind of like uh, small games. So he states he got his first real computer in 1981. It was an Atari 800 with 48K of RAM, and at the same time, he also got a handful of games. One of them was a text adventure called Strange Odyssey. After playing and completing that game, he knew that he would write text adventures for a living. So through a friend from Radio Shack, he ended up getting a job writing for Analog Magazine. It's an Atari, Analog was an Atari enthusiast magazine that would publish the code for freeware games, which uh, would allow people to kind of take those as examples and write their own software based on them. So Brian quickly got two text adventures published in the magazine in 1983 and 1984. His framework for these games became the basis for most future text text adventures, which were published in Analog. Shortly thereafter, Moriarty moved over to the text adventure giant Infocom. Interestingly, though, despite his successful adventures released in uh, in Analog Magazine, he wasn't initially hired as a game designer or even as a pro as a game programmer specifically. He was hired to engineer and maintain assembly language interpreters. After rewriting the 6502 assembler, Atari, Commodore 64, Commodore 64 plus four, and Tandy interpreters, they uh, I don't know if he made a stink or if. Uh, Something else happened, but they finally promoted him to game designer. As an Infocom designer, Brian released quite a few very successful text adventure games, including Beyond Zork, which is one of the last official Zork games in 1987. I know I've actually been asked to cover Zork as part of the uh, as part of the show, and uh, you know we'll see. We may get around to that. It's a little bit before kind of the the era of this show, but you know maybe we'll do it because there are the the Zork games do extend into this period. Anyways, Brian loved his work at Infocom, and he still calls it the best work experience that he's ever had. So carrying that memory and love for interactive fiction or text adventure games, uh, he moved on to Lucasfilm Games and was tasked with designing (laughs) a graphic adventure game. Oh my god! And uh, he was obviously tasked by LucasArts to design this adventure game using the then kind of still developing scum game engine. The existing staff at LucasArts had their philosophy set. They wanted to beat out adventure game king Sierra by making approachable games where you can't die, the complete opposite of the kill fest that was Sierra Adventure Gaming. But, you know, despite the fact the team had those kind of goals in mind, Moriarty came from a different background than uh, the rest of the people who would very shortly form the Loom development team. He loved text adventures and he wanted to take the paradigm that he had worked with in the past and kind of move it forward into the realm of graphics. 
if you break Loom gameplay down as, you know, I have talked about it just now, it really does boil down to the essence of a, of a text adventure. In other adventure games, you pick things up, you move from place to place, you decide kind of when and how to do things, and to a certain extent, even what order to do them in. But Loom is much more linear. You know, there are no items to deal with. You have to do things in the right order, and you know you have to discover drafts in a certain order, and you know there aren't very many different ways to go through the game. And as you do things in this right order, the story kind of unfolds around you. This is what Moriarty wanted. He wanted to take interactive storytelling that he had been working on at Infocom and take it to the next level. So with the help of Mike Ferrari and Steve Purcell on animation, George Sanger and Eric Hammond adapting the Swan Lake music to MIDI, and of course many more, you know, a few more artists and programmers, Loom was released in 1990 to critical reviews. Reviewers loved the unique approach to the game, but, you know, they did also mention the fact that it was only about 2.5 hours long. One year after its release, Loom was upgraded and re-released on CD-ROM. However, this wasn't the CD-ROM that you think it is. It was re-released for the Japanese FM Towns computer, which was developed by Fujitsu. Now, I hadn't heard about this computer until now, but looking it up, it appears that the FM Towns was kind of a multimedia PC that was initially based on the 386 CPU, but that came packaged with a single-speed CD-ROM, a gamepad, a mouse, and a microphone. Uh, it also had onboard sound and could actually, unlike many normal computers at the time, it could play Redbook CD audio tracks. So those are just kind of standard CD audio tracks that you would find on just a regular audio CD. So to take advantage of this special multimedia machine, the FM Towns version of Loom was upgraded to true VGA 320 by 200, 256 color graphics, and the music was remastered and the Red Book to, uh, to Redbook CD audio instead of MIDI tracks. On top of this, two versions of each track were recorded. The first version would play, and then the alternate version would play after the original was done, and the two tracks would then kind of loop alternately in the background. Since the FM Towns machine ran its own proprietary OS, this version did not run, was not compatible on standard DOS-based PCs. So to solve this issue, in 1992, the DOS CD-ROM version was released. While the graphics were pretty much the same as the FM Towns version, the major difference between the two of them was that the DOS CD-ROM version became LucasArts' first talkie game. Loom was now fully voiced. In fact, they were able to get most of the original actors from the audio drama to reprise their roles in the game itself. This wasn't Space Quest-style Bob from Accounting. These were professional voice actors, just like we talked about in Sam and Max. The, you know, the, the voice quality was great, the production quality was great, and uh, you know overall, very, very good. So as great as this was, to include all the dialogue and all the CD audio tracks of music, unfortunately, some things had to be cut. So the DOS CD-ROM version lacks a lot of the, uh, the close-ups on the characters from the previous versions when you know, you're talking to them. Alternate solutions to puzzles were removed, and some of the scenes and the dialogue were, were shortened for space considerations. Like other cult classics that have been modified and re-released over time, like, well, I probably don't want to say Star Wars, but things like Blade Runner and stuff like that, there's a debate over which version of Loom is the definitive version. Moriarty claims that it is the DOS CD-ROM version, while many fans claim the FM Towns version with its improved graphics but full gameplay is the definitive 
version of Loom. Now, since this game was released, there's been talk of sequels. Brian Moriarty actually has contradicted himself in a few interviews as have other members of the dev team. So uh, in some cases, it was said that Loom was originally envisioned as a trilogy when the with uh, the next two games starring characters in the other guilds that Bobbin encounters during the first game. In other interviews, we're told the game wasn't envisioned originally as a trilogy, but there was some talk of sequels which never went very far. So on top of this inconsistency, the reason for them not moving forward with the sequels are even inconsistent. One person saying Moriarty had moved on to other projects and didn't have the time to do a sequel. Another saying that Moriarty really wanted to do it, but uh, management no longer wanted to put money into, uh, into the project. Regardless of the real story, no sequels to Loom were ever developed, and there are sadly, currently, as far as I can see, no plans to do so. Have you ever experienced uncontrollable bouts of geekdom? If so, the Anomaly podcast may be right for you. In clinical studies, Anomaly's interviews, convention reports, commentary on geek culture, games, sci-fi and fantasy television, literature, and film provided a feeling of fullness while promoting health for optimal geekiness. The Anomaly podcast is not suitable for all people. Only geekily active cool chicks with a healthy sense of humor should listen. Geekily active cool guys should listen too. Anomaly has resulted in sudden fits of squee. Broad smiles may appear without warning and could become permanent. The most common side effects of Anomaly are unconsciously joining in the Gamma Quadrant golf clap, out loud, at work, to the amusement of co-workers, and attempting to interject opinions aloud to hosts who can't hear the listener. But in all cases, the benefits outweigh the risks. Ask your anomaly if you're healthy enough for entertainment of this caliber. You don't need a doctor's messy handwriting to obtain a free subscription. Anomaly is available over-the-counter at Stitcher Radio and in the iTunes, Zune, and BlackBerry stores. You can also stream episodes of Anomaly and Anomaly Supplemental at anomalypodcast.com. That's A-N-O-M-A-L-Y podcast.com. Just one one-hour episode provides 24 hours of relief and never leaves a bad taste in your mouth. Music by JewelBeat.com Where can you get Loom today? Well, in 2009, the Taki DOS CD-ROM version became available on Steam for a mere $5. In addition, poking around the Steam forums shows that there is, in fact, a way to get the fuller FM Towns version running based on the Steam version. However, the site that had all the instructions uh, appears to be down, at least as of right now. If it comes back up, I will link that site in the show notes. However, unless you're really a purist, the Steam version is more than fine. Now, if you want to get your hands on the original EGA MIDI version, you may need to poke around some shadier locations. I got mine off of BitTorrent. And of course, there are quite a few abandonware sites of uh, you know varying dubious legality. I kind of figure, well, I did buy the version off Steam, so if I want to grab the EGA version from wherever it is, since it's no longer available, well, you know, why not? But again, if you're in a rush and you just want to give it a go in the easiest way possible, in kind of the most modern form with voice and all that good graphics, the Steam version is most definitely the way to go. 
Okay, big question time. Does Loom hold up today? Well, for me, this one is easy. Yes. I'm actually kind of kicking myself. You know, I've known about this game since it came out, since 1990. Being a gamer of the early 90s, in addition to being a huge Lucasfilm fan, I had seen ads for this game everywhere. They make fun of this game in Space Quest 4. I read about it in LucasArts fan material, and, you know, I always just kind of put it aside. I said, hey, I'll get around to playing it, I'll find it, I'll buy it, I won't buy it, my friend will get it, all that stuff. And I never played it. I never got around to playing this game until last week. Despite the minor issues I covered, this game is a masterpiece. Be it the CD-ROM version or the original EGA version, this game is great. It has a deep, well-written, incredibly engaging storyline, compelling dialogue, great voice acting, and an incredibly unique gameplay style. It really does bear a playthrough. If I had to, at this point, recommend one game out of all the games I have covered on this show thus far, it would be this one. It's that special. I didn't think, honestly, that I could be surprised by games of this era at this point. You know, these games are old. I've played most of them. And, you know, at the end of the day, if I missed one, it's probably just like another one. But Loom, frankly, surprised me. I had no idea this was how this game played. I figured it was a click and point and choose walk and choose talk kind of game. And that's not how it was. So, wow, that's all I have to say. So on that note, that is it for another show. Thank you to everyone who emailed in this time around and everyone else, all of you guys, for taking the time to listen to me yet again. Send email, please, or audio comments, which I love even more than, uh, than written emails, to podcast at umbcast.com. Thanks, as always, to Rick Moyer for his great audio work. You can find his stuff over at moyermultimedia.com. Uh, check out the show notes and other blog posts at umbcast.com. You can join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. That's definitely a, a place where I post any kind of deals or anything like that or, you know, where we talk about interesting news stories or, you know, I even kind of put out, I you know, questions for, you know, what do you guys want to see next and all kinds of stuff like that. That's probably the best place to uh, to interact with uh, with me and with the uh, the other listeners of the show. But on top of that, you can also, of course, follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash umbshow. You can follow me personally at twitter.com slash billybob476. And finally, you can, and you should, please, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Leave me a review there, be it on whatever store you're you're a member of. And uh, you can also stream me live at Stitcher Radio. So that's that. Next week, we are going to go into business with Railroad Tycoon. Hooray. So I'm really looking forward, really looking forward to that. So that's it. Thank you guys very, very, very much. And I will see you next time in the Upper Memory Block. Battle Control terminated. You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? 
Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join.